My name is Kamara Holloway, and I'm the project manager for the Romare Bearden Catalog Resume. As a part of the Wildenstein Plattner Institute's Oral History Project, we're here today to speak with Andre Thibault, Bearden's studio assistant from 1980 to 1988. It's November 5th, 2021, and we're also joined by Josie Naran, who is the WPI's oral historian. So thank you, Andre, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. And to start off with, I'd like to get a little bit of background information from you. So could you tell us when and where you were born? 1948, and I was born in a town called Rivière du Loup, River of the Wolf in Quebec, north of Quebec City. Oh, great. Wonderful. So you're Canadian. So are your parents also Canadian? Can you tell us where they were from? So they were from Canada as well. It's the same city I just mentioned, or town. Okay. And what were their names? Leopold and my mother, Lorraine. Lorraine Camila Thibault. Okay. That's pretty. And what did they do for work? Uh, My mother chased me around a lot, and my father was a carpenter. Oh, that's exciting. So what was it like growing up there where you were? I was there for about four years, and at that point, we moved to North Montreal. Uh, My memories of it was uh, long, cold winters, uh, the cherry jam that my grandmother made, in her backyard. I still remember that. Uh, about five years ago, I t- my wife and I took a trip to that region of Quebec, and I showed her the house that my father had built that I was born in. And uh, we uh, stayed uh, on the St. Lawrence Seaway. And I remember we, we had uh, bought some items for lunch. And while we're on the balcony of our hotel room that we were in, uh, there were beluga whales going up and down the river. Uh, it was an unusual sight, white whales. And when we saw them popping out of the water, first time I'd ever seen that. You know, I never saw that as a child. But um, You never saw it as a child. No. So what did you um, have, um, besides your grandmother's jam, what else did you remember? Do you have any memories of art besides your father's work? No, no. I, uh, even when we moved to uh, outside of Montreal, uh, it, uh, my father was always busy working, so I just spent a lot of time mostly by myself, uh, entertaining myself. Uh, and then at the and end, what did you do to entertain yourself? Uh, went out in the woods uh, around the neighborhood and just uh, chased animals, squirrels, uh, you name it. Uh, I, I kept busy. I was outdoors quite a bit. And then at the age of nine, my father and uh, my brother and mother moved to Manchester, New Hampshire. Okay. And the reason uh, was he had more work there. And uh, that's how my existence in the United States started. I didn't speak a word of English. And I remember they put us in a parochial school 
where I had to skip a grade just to make up for the English I didn't know. And fortunately, the school, the morning sessions were in French, the afternoon sessions were in English. And that's how I became acquainted with the language. Uh, and is that where you learned about art? No. If you really want to know what, where and what I learned about art, that was at Boston University. I, got, I had a Bachelor of Science degree in communications. And during those courses, I had to do courses on visual communications. And I didn't realize that I had the ability to do it so easily, where it was probably one of the most difficult courses at BU. A lot of students failed it. And uh, <clears throat> our presentation of our visual thought would be to a, a, an auditorium. So there were about 80, 90 students in this auditorium. And I always made something with a bit of humor attached to it. Stolen Kisses. I remember that particular work I made. And my professor, Dean, she was eventually became the Dean of the School of Communications at BU. Donis Dondis. What a name. Uh, yeah. And she was tough. She was, you know, if any student went in there thinking, oh, visual communication, how easy can that be? It wasn't easy. But I always made the auditorium just... They laughed, they enjoyed my uh, stuff. And the professor started realizing that when I would go there, they, they were saying, you know, Andre, we wanna see what you have, what do you have? And uh, <clears throat> eventually that professor, Don just said, uh, wherever you wanna go in, in the country, she says, I'll get you the job that you want in art director for advertising, communications, and, I just was not interested at the time. I, I wanted to work in the tennis industry. A friend of mine, David Garvey, worked in the tennis industry, traveled all over the world, and I was just fascinated by his lifestyle. And that's where I wanted to go. Okay. But I, I knew I had an ability to put visual thoughts together quite easily and quite clearly. Okay. So did you have any other artistic training besides that? No. Course? No. Just had that. So you Romare realized it. He realized it from day one. Uh, it wasn't. Just that you had this natural aptitude. Right, right. And as I stated earlier, out of all the artworks that I made, I sold everything I made basically, other than maybe 20 pieces which I have around the house. And uh, it supported me from 1980 to now. Yeah. Can't complain about that. I mean, when I see, when I was in New York City, uh, going back and forth to Romare Studio, I'd see a lot of young people with portfolios in their hand, going here, there, different galleries. Uh, felt sorry for them. It's, it was, yeah. you know, it's not easy. I just... So... How did you end up um, coming to New York and deciding to pursue art? I had worked in Europe. I worked in Paris for Yves Saint Laurent, Men's Suit. I was their quality control director in three different locations, Anin, Poitinal, and Valenciennes. I lived in Valenciennes. Uh, wasn't 
enthralled by it all. I mean, I, I didn't spend all that much time there. And when I came back to the United States, uh, a man in Northern Maine had a grocery wholesale business. And I remember when I was in college, my last year, I interviewed with him. Uh, he came to business college at BU and he was looking for a manager. And during that interview, uh, he realized that in Northern Maine, it's close to Quebec. So there are a lot of French speaking business people. So I had that advantage. Um, and I ended up becoming his general manager. Again, Northern Maine is, it's not an easy place to take year round. I mean, the winters start in September and they end in April. And then you have a month and a half of summer conditions. Uh, so when I left there, I went back to Northern New Jersey to a town called Palisades Park. And, uh, there was a man there who wanted me to manage his discotheque. And this was in 78, 79, which I did. And during that time, I uh, spent a lot of hours in that place. God, I'd get there at 10 in the morning and I wouldn't leave until maybe 2.33 the next morning. So it was... It was something I really wasn't pleased with. In the meantime, I went to, uh, I was living with a lady that assisted me in managing this nightclub, the draft club and restaurant. That's what it was called. And this was in New Jersey. Right. And okay. one day she said to me, she goes, you know, there's a art show coming up, Vansone Park in Bergen County, big, beautiful park. She says, they're having an art fair. And, and she looked at the pieces I had made at Boston University, which I kept in a folder, all of these visual communication things. And she said, you know, you would do well there. Enter three, four, five pieces. And I wasn't too keen on it, but we did. I entered five pieces that day at this particular art fair. And it, it was judged. They had four university professors from uh, Fairlawn University, uh, different colleges in the area that juried this particular show. I got third place, sold three pieces, I think for $50 a piece. And I thought, wow, that was easy. It's, people just want to buy this. So uh, that's what triggered something in my mind. I said, well, maybe I should consider making an occupation out of this. And what I did is I rented a studio down the road from where we were living and uh, just started making artwork. And I didn't know really what I was doing. But what happened when I was there, I received, uh, I don't know if you remember or are aware of the Cordier Ekstrom Gallery in New York City? Yes. Mr. Ekstrom, Arns Ekstrom, okay. <clears throat> from his, I, I had gone there one time for a show just to look at it. And I had left my name, address and everything for mailings. And I received an invite for a Romare Bearden show to his gallery. And uh, that particular month, Romare ended up on the cover of Art News magazine. This was 1980. I don't know if you saw that 
publication or I had it, but the Smithsonian grabbed it from me. They, a Romare autographed it for me. And then on the back, he put his phone number and I'll mention how that happened. So I'm looking in this magazine and I see Romare's work. And I was, uh, I was amazed. I mean, he was doing what I would have loved to have made to do in collage. And that's all I worked in was collage. Um, and I remember going to this show. I brought the catalog with me when I went in and I just stuffed it down my pants. So I, <clears throat> as I'm in the gallery, the place was very crowded. To the far corner, I see Romare's head, his profile. And I said, oh, that's the guy on the cover of this catalog. And I, I'm walking up to where he was and he's talking to people. There are a lot of... Uh, very well-dressed people, furs, jewelry, uh, all the baubles were out that day. As I'm walking towards him, I'm pulling my catalog out and he turned around and he looked at me in my direction. And at first he wasn't sure what this crazy person was doing, coming towards him, pulling this catalog out. And as I got closer, I put it in front of him like this. And I said, guess what? And he smiles. He starts looking. He goes, that's me. I says, I know. And you could hear the people around him saying, one woman said, and I heard this uh, to her husband, I told you, George, we should have brought ours, you know, because they, they were afraid to, I guess, or didn't. And I said, Mr. Beard, and I said, I would really enjoy an autograph from you on the cover of this. And because uh, he's signing it, I, uh, I said, by the way, I said, like you, I, I make collages. And he said, oh, he goes, what kind of collages? I said, well, I don't know much of what I'm doing. I, you know, I, I'd love to learn more. And uh, he said, how serious are you? I said, that's all I do. I quit everything else. I said, that's all I'm making is collages. He flips the catalog page over and on the back, I, I see he pulls a pen out of his pocket and he inscribes his phone number on Canal Street where he was living. And he said, give me a call. Maybe we can arrange something for you to come by my studio. And uh, I'd like to see what it is that you do. He said, I don't want you coming there thinking that you're gonna see what I'm doing because you're not. He said, uh, I want you to bring a work, a completed work, maybe two if you can, which I did. And. Uh, I remember calling him at home. Nanette answers the phone and she goes, uh, Romare, Rami, she goes, uh, there's a young man on the phone. His name is Andre Thibault. And he said that you uh, mentioned to him that he can come by your studio. And he said, oh, I remember like that. Then he gets on the phone and he said, uh, I'm going to give you directions to my studio and we can make it this coming Wednesday. I remember I called him on a Monday and uh, gives me directions to take the seven train. He said, the minute you get out of the tunnel, he goes, first exit out of the tunnel is where you get off. And then he said, uh, come into the building, gave me directions to the building where he was in. He said, I'll be on the third floor. I remember getting there. I get on this elevator, slowest elevator I've ever taken in my life. I mean, this, oh God, I didn't think I'd make it to the third floor, but finally do. And I walked out of the elevator, I walked to the hallway and there was a door 
with a little plastic plate with his name on it, just said Romare Bearden. And I knocked on the door and the door slowly opened, but the man on the other side was not Romare, it was Barry Stavis, which I okay. later met. Uh, I have a lot of correspondence from Barry in regards to the experiences he had. And, and he's, Barry says to me, he goes, uh, what can I do for you? I said, well, you can't really do much other than let me in because I'm here to see Mr. Bearden. And he's, he shows me and Romare is sitting down at the round table that eventually we all sat at. That's where we held lunch, conferences, everything. Uh, he said, place your pieces up along that the board over here and he says I'll be with you in about 10 minutes so he completes his business with uh, Barry and then I, I was up against the wall not saying anything I was very nervous uh, I'm thinking oh my god what's the worst that can happen here he'll look at the pieces and then he'll say nice work talk to you later uh, it's, it's, I had all these thoughts flowing in the back of my mind that uh, things might not go as well as I expected he spent 15 minutes, 20 minutes, going from one piece to the other. And he's going back and forth. And then he turns around, he looks at me, he goes, have a seat. So I sit down and he said, nice. He goes, I, I like what I'm looking at. He goes, how many of these do you make a month? And I, I said, I'm not sure. I said, sometimes I don't have any ideas. You know, I just go blank. He said, next time you come here, I want you to bring at least four brand new pieces that you made. And he goes, what I can do is I can make you a far better artist than what you currently are. And he said, when you come here, I just want to see what it is that you do. So from 1980 to 1984, that's mostly what I did is bring in completed works. It, it was one day a week, then it became two days a week. And uh, he was fascinated by the boards that I made these collages on. Uh, there was a man by the name of Hans Bavarian. He's from Bavaria. He was a master cabinet builder in Northern Jersey, not far from where my studio was. And uh, as a matter of fact, when the Pope came to the Meadowgrounds in New Jersey, Hans is the one that designed all of the, uh, the seat, the furniture, the whole uh, uh, staging for, for this Pope's visit. And I remember going to Hans, telling him what I did and asking if he could make me some boards that I can make these works on. Boards were 18 by 24 inches, 11 by 14, 30 by 40, 40 by 60 inches. But they were made so well. And it was marine ply score that he used. Now, marine ply score does not warp or won't because they use it on boats. And uh, he would back those with uh, poplar, pop, the poplar tree, that kind of wood. And the reason why, poplar is one of the strongest material you can use that will not warp on you. The boards and uh, Hans mentioned to me, he said, you know, you should glue some papers on the back of these, all of them. He said, that'll strengthen the front. He goes, so when you make a work, it'll 
perfectly laid flat. At that point, I realized Romain was having problems with what he was working on. He was using masonite. Masonite's a heavy product, and it's difficult to to back. And uh, but every time I would bring a piece to his studio, he was examining the whole thing, the back, the board. So where do you get these? You know, he was fascinated. In 1984, my relationship with Romer changed dramatically. Uh, I brought a collage that I had to borrow a car, a roof rack. This was a 40 by 60 inch collage, which I still have in storage. And I remember when I brought it to a studio and I put it up against his work stand and he was sitting at the table and I had it covered with a sheet. And I said, are you ready for this? He said, hit it. And I uncovered the piece and I watched him. He just stood there looking at that completed work. And Do you remember the subject matter of the work? Oh, it reminded me a lot of Fernand Leger, that artist, Fernand Leger. Yes. And uh, he just, all of a sudden took me, he clapped his hands really loud, went, he said, that's it, teams. He said, we're done. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, what do you mean done? He said, I've taught you everything I possibly can. God, this is it. He goes, you've done it. I'll get over it. Well, that sounds like a very special moment. Oh, it was. You feel that you were. It was. It was. I was so elated. I all the way home, I just floated. You know, I kept thinking, "Wow, he finally totally approves of what I'm doing," and that changed me dramatically. I started putting out stuff that just dazzled him. He, he just. Everyone I brought, you know, oh, wow, this is unbelievable. But I still have that piece that I brought to him. Tollgate to Passion was the title of it, made in 1984. And the subject matter is, it it looks like steel tubes coming down, but they meet in the middle and it's open slightly. And then the background of that are reds and different colors that really pop out in the middle of that large piece. And there's a, uh, just a set of lips, woman's lips and eyes. And that's it. That's the toll gate to passion. So if you get past that, you're in a world of passion. Uh, (laughs) He he really, uh, I know that, that just struck him. And then I started making three-dimensional collages. What, how that occurred was in Nyack, New York, where I would ride my bicycle to, was a place called So What's New. And it was a fabric store that this woman ran, S-E-W, What's New. Uh, and in her window was a wooden mannequin which was a uh, 
she, I asked the lady what it was. She goes, well, they used that in, in the early 1900s for wedding gown forms. But it was the shape of a woman without a head, no arms, just that shape on a pedestal. And when I looked at that, I kept thinking, wow, if I had something like that, I could really make a wonderful piece of artwork. It would be striking. Uh, so what I did is uh, I, I, after three trips to her store, I finally convinced her to sell me the work, that piece. And she did, brought it home in my studio and realized that mm, it's going to be difficult to work on because the slats of wood were starting to peel a little bit. And I didn't think I could really adhere something to that. What was amazing, underneath was a label. And the label was in, uh, not far from Rumair Studio in Long Island City, was where this was made. I called that number that they had. Man picks up the phone. I said, I have a wedding gown form that you made. Blah, blah, blah. He says, yeah. Now, he said, we make those out of fiberglass. I'm thinking, oh, that's great. Fiberglass. What an easy surface. Went to his place and there around the shop that he had, which was a rather sizable studio with three, five different uh, forms in fiberglass, which all of them I could use. Some were heads that were about uh, 20 inches in height. Then the form that I really liked was right about up to here to me. That's how tall they were. So I bought, oh God, a half a dozen pieces and they, they weren't cheap. Um, brought them to my studio and finally collaged one. And then when Romare saw what I was doing, I brought him some photos. He goes, this is what Nanette's been looking for. So she's got to see this. And I, and I remember he wanted me to take one of the pieces to his home on Canal Street, which I did. And uh, carrying that thing up his stairs to go to his second level uh, studio apartment that they had, it, it was daunting. Uh, but uh, he just couldn't believe that someone could make a three-dimensional collage like that. And Nanette was just amazed at it. And uh, he was talking about trading. He said, I'll give you one of mine, you give me one of yours. And I figured, that's fair. And uh, that's, that's basically what happened. Um, so how did you go from showing him examples of your work to working with him on his pieces? I remember the first work that he and I worked on, Storyville Mirror is the name of it. I'll give you a lot of titles of the pieces that we worked on, but Storyville Mirror uh, was of the New Orleans red light district, Storyville pieces that he made of the prostitutes in the area, etc. Well, this was a 30 by 40 collage and uh, you know, Bostonia Magazine uh, has that in photo. And the, the one that they did of, uh, of this story, this was after he had passed away. Uh, the, okay. 
talks about my experiences with the FBI. I don't know if you realize that the FBI came to my studio. And the reason why, the reason why uh, a lot of forgeries came up in the mid 90s from ACA Gallery to uh, a lot of small galleries around Manhattan. And they were all forgeries, which I saw, I went to see, I was invited to come and take a look. And uh, the FBI asked me to come to their headquarters in Queens, New York, which I did. There in a room, they had approximately 15 works that they wanted me to look at, which were supposedly all beardings, but they weren't. Immediately when I looked at them, I wouldn't make something like that and Romare wouldn't make something like that. Boards were not right. Just, they found who was doing this. Now, the agent, Kathy Begley, was the woman who came to my home to pick me up in northern New Jersey, drive me to Queens, drove me back, um, did not arrest these people. I was surprised. That shocked me. Why? The man was too old, she said. He was too old and frail. He won't make it in jail. But they were a Spanish couple from Spain. And I remember her earlier than that calling me at my home. And I was wondering how she got my number. Had a, an accent, strong Spanish accent. And wanted to know if they could come to my studio in Englewood, New Jersey, where it was located at the time. And I said, no, I really don't have time for that. They wanted to come to see how the work was being made, what they could do to improve the lousy product that they had. And I remember that phone call. I told the FBI about that. And they, I'm pretty sure they traced it <laughs> because every time I pick up my phone, I would hear funny clicks. Yeah, so they were investigating everything. They uh, checked out my bank accounts, you name it. They were there. So in your opinion, what was the distinguishing characteristic of a Bearden piece that could tell people that it was the real thing? I remember Romer telling me one time, he goes, shaking me in the studio. He goes, Tibo, don't be afraid of color. He wanted me to use more color. Don't be afraid to use color, incorporate it more. I was using a lot of grays and blacks and things like that in some of the works. You look at a beard and uh, even the cover of this and what stands out more clearly than any other collages is the color. He makes a piece that pops. It's just so different. This Spanish man that was trying to fake beardens. He was copying what Romare had made, but the cuttings, the way he cut it, the way he put it together was not the way Romare would want it. Why Romare liked to see my work, I did it completely different than what he did. I had, uh, there's a piece that uh, Myron, it's in Myron Schwartzman's book, The Life of Romare Bearden. It's in his book and I'm standing there's a big 40 by 60 inch piece. It's a jazz piece, large piece. And on that board, when he took that photo, you're going to see a little blue, what I call a scraper, about this big, and it's right there on the board. Romare had no clue what that was when I first brought it to his studio. But what it does, 
it takes the air. If you put glue on the back of a piece of paper, you lay it down, you're going to get bubbles. What this would do is take the bubbles out. Now, Romare had problems with a lot of his works early on. Even Mr. Ekstrom had shown me some works asking me if I could fix them because the bubbles would come out and that section of paper would sometimes dry out. So it wouldn't lay flat. All of my works were dead flat. You could look at it from the edge to side, no bubbles. What that little blue scraper did was take the bubbles out and I would use an X-Acto knife, number 11 X-Acto knife with a point and I'd prick a hole in that bubble and just ease out the air. So the collage was dead flat. The faker in uh, Spain didn't know that. His pieces, you'd look at it and you'd say, what? There's a bump here. There's a lump here. There's something wrong. Uh, Romare eventually, when I started making that piece, uh, Storyville Mirror, he was amazed at how perfectly flat it was. And how that was made was using a Sears and Roebuck catalog, a 1932 Sears and Roebuck catalog. You'd open this catalog and they had all the things that Sears and Roebuck sold. Dressers, beds, lamps, uh, all the material that Sears and Roebuck would handle. And he would say to me, he goes, Tebow, he says, take the catalog, find me a mirror. Now the Storyville mirror uh, took me a half a day to find a perfect mirror to put in the center of that piece from that Sears catalog. So what I would use is tracing paper. I would take a tracing paper and trace it up there. And then Romare had a bin in the corner of the studio with discarded prints. Uh, Robert Blackburn, do you know who I'm talking about? Yes, sir. Okay. Robert would come to the studio bringing big, beautiful papers that he would run inks through prints do the rainbowing effect where you don't have a strong edge, but what you have is a melding of colors together. And <clears throat> I would find the right source of paper that Robert Blackburn would bring. And I traced out this uh, frame for that mirror. You'll see it. If you see the piece, you'll, you'll see how distinctive that is. And uh, that's how we started working. So he would just say to me, I need a chair. Uh, there's a piece called Autumn. And there's this woman, she's a voodoo queen, and she's sitting in a chair. Well, the chair was from the Sears and Roebuck catalog, which I cut out with a lot of Robert Blackburn's material. It, it just was so different than anyone else, anything. And, and when he would say to me, he goes, Tebow, he goes, lay this down. And what he meant by that is no bubbles, no air. He liked that. He was fascinated by that. He'd say, lay this down. I need a chair. Uh, I need the, uh, a, a ribbon for the lady's hair. That's how we worked. You know, he, he died of bone cancer. Um, and there were days in the studio that really weren't very pretty. You know, the painkillers he was using disabled him in so many ways. And I'd have to watch him. I, Russell would bring him in in the morning and he'd say, Tebow, today, Keep an eye on him, you know. He's, Who he's, was uh, Russell, excuse me? Who was Russell? Russell Goings. Russell Goings, okay. Yeah, well, there's a man, he's, he's an enigma to say the least. 
So tell me, um, tell me how you took on the name Tebow. Yeah, that's that's a crazy story. Uh, Early on in my career, I entered a lot of national art shows, won most of them. Um, But every time I was asked to come to the podium, they would say, uh, Andre Thibault. They couldn't pronounce my name. And it really frustrated the hell out of me. I says, Tebow. I'd get up on the podium and I'd go, look, it's Tebow. And someone said, well, change the spelling. And I thought, well, what's the closest thing? Coffee, tea, T-E-A, Bo, Bo Derek, B-O. Oh, uh, that's it, right. Tebow. But Mr. Ekstrom, Arn Ekstrom, he, he called me on occasions to come by and visit with him, which I did. And one day he said to me, he goes, uh, what's Tebow? He says, are you, are you Spanish? Are you? I said, no. I said, my real name is, and I spelled it out for him. And he goes, why don't you use that? He said, uh, makes more sense to me than just T-Bow. I thought it was going to simplify things. So I went back to, and as in Myron's book right here, if you see my name, it's spelled T-H-I-B-A-U-L-T, which is the correct spelling. I'm looking for that piece I, I was talking to you about. The Storyville Mirror? Oh. No. The large collage that Romare had made, that Myron had taken a photo of, uh, it's been years. Oh, page 300. Okay. Yeah, that is quite that a, piece that yes. Romare's, yeah, we, when Myron came in the studio to interview Romare, he looked at that piece and said, holy, couldn't believe that we were creating such a large work. Romare couldn't do that by himself. I mean, they, we propped him up just so he could take that photo with him there. But I can see that little blue piece I was mentioning to you, the scraper. It's uh, almost at the edge of that. You see a little blue thing there. That was okay. the scraper. Yeah, I think I see it. Okay, and then on page 302... There's that photo of Romare and I together behind Storyville yes. Mirror. And see the frame? I wish you could see the full color piece of that, but I had to make get those chairs that are in that piece. And the lamp that's in there came from the Sears Robot catalog. Were there other magazines or catalogs that you remember using? Um... No, the Sears really, God, I, I made full use of that. I, uh, because it stayed with the timing of the works, the Storyville was in late 1800s, and the catalog displayed furniture, uh, lamps, and things of that yeah. era. So uh, mostly it was that catalog that saved our butt on m- millions of occasions. Uh, some of the other pieces that we made... I had slides of most of what we had, but I don't know if it's a Smithsonian. I can't find them. I can't find them. But what, but what I have are these pieces of scrap paper that when I would finish, I'd write the title down. Eden Noon. It's a 30 by 40 inch collage. Have you, do you remember seeing that? I've heard of it. Yes. 
Yeah, there's Eden Midnight and Eden Noon. Uh, there was Autumn. Uh, How did you come up see. with the titles? Uh, we just uh, looked at the piece. So was Eden Midnight. There was a star that was incorporated in that piece. That was the last piece to go on that work. And Romero says, we need something to distinguish the night. And he cut out a star and he said, here, Tebow, lay this down. And that's when we came up with that title. Fancy Sticks, collage on board. That's a 24 by 36 inch collage. Something he could not make uh, of that size. Yeah. And especially the one that I showed you on page 300 where he's leaning on. That I have to get to the center of that piece. I have to get to all of the edges. Wasn't easy. It took us a while. Opening at the Savoy, blues singer from the Delta, another 30 by 40 inch piece. Opening at the Savoy is a 40 by 60 inch piece. Blue Morning Rain, one of my favorites. Uh, that's a 30 by 40 inch piece. I'll show you something that is made from all the material that went into Blue Morning Rain. I love that piece so much that I thought I have to make one of my own. You know, it's just something. I remember when the FBI came to my studio and they saw this, I, my signature is literally on the front of it. That's made from the same materials that were done on the original, the large okay. piece, the 30 by 40, but I love this work. I make, I don't sell these. So when you're, when you're working on a collage, how did you know that the collage was finished? We had some debates about that. There's one piece uh, that shows a train trestle and a train going on this trestle and there's a guitar player down below playing guitar laying on the bank. That flew out of Romare's window on, uh, in Long Island City uh, half a dozen times. It was so frustrating, just couldn't get it. And finally, when I said, let's just put a guitar play down in the field and that'll be the whole gist of the piece. And it worked, it worked out perfectly. You just know, you just say, what else can we do here? And uh, yeah, we just instinctively knew that uh, that was it. Deep River Quartet, a 24 by 36 inch collage of uh, the jazz pieces. Evening guitar, Gospel Morning. We recently saw Gospel Morning. Can you tell us a little bit more about that one? Well, what I remember when you, you asked the question, when do we know that the piece is finished? Uh, we try to jam quite a bit into that. Uh, but uh, I just don't really remember how it started, why, you know, it, it came to be. But uh, we did that for the Siegel Gallery in Boston, that solo show. At Low Tide is another piece that we had made. Together, Romare and I created 24 large-scale collages. That's what he wanted to do. And evening, let me see. Oh, Eden Noon and Eden Midnight. We would, those pieces were being completed for a show that we were going to do in Berlin, Germany. There was a couple that came to my studio 
I wish I could find their business card, but I think the Smithsonian grabbed that in my box. And they wanted Romare to have a show in Berlin, his first European show uh, that just never really got completed because oh, three, four months later, Romare finally succumbed to his uh, cancer. But what was amazing about that, and there's a piece you, you're probably going to see, uh, At Low Tide is the title of this piece, was the very last work he made. Uh, I would put the pieces down and I'd say, you want me to lay this down? He goes, no, I'll do it. And he struggled to get it done. But uh, At Low Tide, and... When I was giving this PowerPoint presentation to the Museum of Modern Art at the ACA Gallery three years ago, four years ago, um, that piece was on the wall. He completed that work, signed the front and the back, and said, I never asked him for anything in my life. I just, I never got, you know, I wasn't being paid. Uh, he said, Tebow, I want you to have this. This is for your studio. He, because I told him I wanted to build a studio uh, eventually. And uh, I saw it at the ACA gallery. They had it on the wall. Uh, eventually, I sold it for money. They had it for sale at 350000 And that it sold. That, that, but what I had, what assisted Jeffrey to sell that <coughs> was the photo of Romare holding the piece when he finished it. He had it on his lap, and I took a photo of him holding that. Uh, it was amazing. The following day, he didn't come back to the studio. That was it. At low tide. So do you know what happened to the studio once he died? I went back a half a dozen times. One was to complete two works that Manette wanted. And the last time I was in the studio, it looked pretty much in disarray. It looked like somebody ransacked through it. There was stuff all over the ground. Uh, the area where I worked uh, was gone. Um, a lot of changes were coming up and <clears throat> And Annette wanted me to come by and bring the keys, which I did. Yeah, I have no idea if they're doing anything with that or, or what's going on there. I doubt that even the building's still there because someone told me that they're doing a lot of development in that area where he was. So what were the works that you completed? Do you remember? The what, works that you finished. What yeah. work? Oh, the, the, the last yeah. pieces? I don't... I saw one that they said they used on an album cover for Wynton Marcellus. Oh, okay. So if you see a beard in there, that's the one that needed to be finished. So perhaps you could tell me what your favorite thing was about working with Bearden in the studio. Learning every minute of the time that I was there, I absorbed everything that he was 
telling me how to do and uh, some of his stories that he would uh, recount. Uh, I just enjoyed his company and it worked out perfect. You know, Kamara, the most difficult thing an artist could do is have someone come into their space and assist, work. It's not easy, not easy at all. I, I remember that piece, Storyville Mirror, that we worked on thinking that, how can this get completed? But once we did, we realized that photo that you saw of us holding our chins together, we finally realized that this can work. And from that moment on, we just beat you know, steady production. Yeah. And, uh, I'd, I'd come mentally prepared to finish whatever it is that we would start. And that's crucial. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the, that feeling of being brought back to life. Every time we would finish something, we'd start something else. And uh, I couldn't wait to see the end result. So the two minds, I couldn't do that by myself. Wouldn't, wouldn't know, what would I do? Wouldn't know. But between he and I, and that ability to want to make something, finish it and make a nice work of art, uh, that was exciting. That worked out very well, much better than what I ever anticipated. Great. Um, earlier, you mentioned um, Barry Stavis, mm -hmm. and you mentioned Russell Goings, mm -hmm. um, both who came to the studio. Do you remember other people who came to the studio to visit while you were there? Yeah, I have a photograph of Romare with Robert Blackburn at the table. There was uh, people, some of his collectors would come by. Oh, God, I... There were quite a few, but uh, we're talking 1983, 80, way back. My mind is... Uh, at times not functioning anymore. <laughs> That's okay. Did uh did Mr. Ekstrom come to the gallery? Uh, to to the studio, I'm sorry. No. No. Mm -mm. Towards towards the end of that relationship, it, it was well once Romare passed away, uh, I guess Nanette and June Kelly terminated the relationship between Mr. Ekstrom and, and Bearden. They wanted to get more money for the works and thought that someone else would get more. <laughs> Mr. Ekstrom had a wonderful following. He, he was a well-noted dealer in Manhattan, but things changed. And what about you after Bearden passed, you returned to your own studio? Mm -hmm. I had a studio in Englewood at St. Cecilia's Church. It was the old parochial school that they had closed down. And I had a second level room, beautiful room, big room. Part of my studio in that room was sort of dwarfed by the size of it, but I had cheap rent. Couldn't say no. And then eventually uh, I met my wife and uh, 
we decided to acquire a home in Leonia, New Jersey, right next door to Englewood. And there in that house in the attic area is where I utilized Romare's gift, the money from that piece of art to build, to blow out the attic, which I put a roof, a balcony, uh, beautiful French doors that opened up so I could have all that air coming in. And that's where uh, I created a lot of works in that space. I wish Romare would have seen it. I'm sure he probably did. You know, somehow, some way. He said, my boy finally did it. You know, put his studio together. And that's, that worked out. So what is your favorite story about Bearden out of the many that you have? Boy. I guess what I mentioned earlier, one of my favorites is how he and I met at, at the show, the gallery, Mr. Ekstrom's gallery. Um, other stories are, he and I would go to lunch at times down the road from where the studio was. There was a place that he enjoyed. And there he would just recount his childhood experiences where he was living. Uh, one story that he had, I remember we were in the studio working and he gave, he said to me, uh, it was a story about an archer, about an arrow. And how that came about was, I guess, putting our thoughts together. He said, it's as easy as, he said, we can combine our ideas and that'll work out great. And it always did. Um, most of the time I was busy working. You know, if uh, I didn't want to go there and just sit around and chat, I'd much rather go there and put something together. <clears throat> and he would sit at the table, the round table. Did you ever see photos of inside his studio? Uh, not of the round table, no. Okay, there's a small table about 36 inches in circumference and that was, that was where all of the meetings were held and all of the guests that would come would sit at that table. And he would just tell me stories about his childhood experiences, uh, working when he went to Paris to hang out there. Uh, we would converse in French. He spoke French. So it was just being there, even, even being there, not even talking to him, but working. I mean, you could feel the energy, you know, it was there. It, it, it just worked out perfectly. Couldn't, couldn't have asked for a, a better team in that regards. And that was exciting for us. We knew something good was gonna come about. You know, any one week, two a week, however fast we could make them. Yeah. So besides the collages, um, we know that Bearden worked in watercolor sometimes. Did you ever mm -hmm. see him make those? Can mm -hmm. you tell us anything about that? It wasn't traditional on, on his part of how he applied the watercolors onto paper. And there's a piece called Solo Player. It was a jazz 
uh, a saxophone player in the center of the work, but behind him, I had glued down Arches watercolor paper. It was uh, 40 by 30 inches. It was a large piece. And then he said, get me my watercolors. I did. And he said, I want you to hold the board about six inches off the ground at one end, which I did. So I'm holding the board up and he takes a cup of watercolors and he starts pouring it onto the paper. He says, okay, tilt up more, tilt up more. And I'm tilting it up more. He says, now come back down. And he created a beautiful abstract watercolor. But how he applied that was, was genius. I mean, I, I, I was trying to figure out where's he going with this? And sure enough, uh, that's how he worked on most of his watercolors. He would just not take a brush and go finite detail, pour it on and then take the board and maneuver it so he could get what he wanted on that particular board. But this 30 by 40 inch solo player, the saxophone musician was an eye-opening experience for me as to what one can do in collage and combining different materials. Yeah, he wasn't afraid. Uh, no, you screw it up, you can always cover it up again. Yeah, but uh, that's how most of the works got done. So what is something like that that is unexpected that people might not know about Bearden that you witnessed or felt about him? He never had children. And I think in many ways that benefited him somehow um, because the child in him never left. And... That's why his works are so vibrant, so lyrical, because the kid in him wants to play every day. And uh, that's, that's what I got from him. Taught me a lot, uh, more than any Harvard professor could. Yeah, his, his, his brilliance in art is indescribable in many ways. I mean, uh, it was just fascinating. It's like that first piece of his I saw in that catalog before I even met Romare and I looked at that work. I knew. I said, wow. That's, that's brilliant. I just knew. And it's amazing how all of a sudden we joined forces in that regard. And I learned. Every day I learned. I'd go home and just say, oh, God, this is... Amazing. But I still had to create a piece and bring it to the studio. That was my key. Yeah, that's how I get in at first. I'm sure he saw the same thing that I saw in many regards, saying that we can combine these two minds together and create something even better. And if you get a chance and look at Storyville mirror in full color and detail, You'll see what I'm talking about, the way it was all knitted. Knitting of the elements is what he called. He said, let's put these together. 
Yeah, fa fascinating time. I'm happy that Myron incorporated a lot of that in his book when he put it out. I was really happy to see that. And as Myron said, when he was watching my working with Romero on that large 40 by 60 inch jazz piece, he said, somebody's got to hear about this. Yeah, it's just... But again, you know, Romero was getting very weak. Last year of his life, I would not want bone cancer. I mean, he suffered. He did. There were days that um, I'd tell him, you know, sit down, put your head down on the table, relax a little bit. I'll finish that. But right up until the last day, think about that, that last piece at low tide. <laughs> Amazing. I wrote a manuscript that I have. And it's the whole story about what transpired, what happened. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but uh, it's there. And the title is Call Me Tebow, T-E-A-B-O. <laughs> <laughs> don't call me Thibault. <laughs> call me Tebow. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, Kamara, it's a, it's, it was such an experience. Um, I have not created anything in quite a while. Um, but to have had that opportunity to make the most out of it, um, it still amazes me that so much got done, that we didn't waste time, didn't sit there chatting. We were, and Russell Gollings, uh, I got to thank him in many ways for having the consistency of getting Romare to the studio and getting him back. Not many people would have done that. So, you know, I, I appreciate that for sure. And there were days, I remember early on, the first year, that I would come there with completed work and Romare wasn't there. I'd wait and wait. The park in front of his studio, there's a bench. I probably wore down the wood on that bench, waiting for the light to go on the third floor, knowing that he was in. Because he would come around the back, the side entrance. Those are memories that I have. But you good memories. I mean... Uh, but perseverance, you know, patience. I don't think many other people would have done what I, what I put up with early on, you know, just to get in the door, let him see what it is that I do, and uh, eventually to have him say to me, I think you and I should work together, you know. Just hearing that, I said, oh. wow. And what I had uh, my cabinet builder do, Hans, Hansi, I call him, um, we made uh, a whole slew of different boards, different size boards, 24 by 20, 30 by 40, 40 by 60. We made five of those, took them to the studio. 
That was great. He just to see the smile on his face when he saw those coming through the door. He said, "Those are mine. Those are ours." You know, it wasn't a work that I'd done. Those were for us. He he was very excited about that. Never had any more complaints from people saying, "Hey, my work is peeling. It's bubbling. Can you fix it?" No more problems. Those were the boards that were made of poplar and this special marine ply score. Okay. Yeah. Boat building materials. And it, it, it's, it, it really is critical because <clears throat> if the board starts warping, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You, you're, you're in a mess. You can't straighten it out. You have to do something else. Uh, this never happened with these boards. It was a whole new world. Something we both uh, looked forward to. Um, what can you tell me about um, Bearden's signing of the works? You mentioned on one of them that he signed the front and the back. Mm -hmm. Did he do that often? No. no. I, I asked him to do that on the back. He, he titled it. He said, this is going to be at low tide. And then there was a piece of paper he wanted me to glue on the back of that particular board that he was going to put the title on, the date. And then when he did that, I said, put your signature there as well. And he did. And then on the front, you know, he signed that. And was there any uh, significance to where he put his signature on the, on the front? <clears throat> For him, it, it, there was. I mean... It, he, he split his name, R-O, and then he'd go M-A-R-E, and then B-E-A-R, then D-E-N. If you look at the signature on most of his works, they are broken down. And he would put that right on the front for all to see. It wasn't a tiny little signature at the bottom. This was prominent. And if I was a collector of Romare's work, I would want that. You know, because... That's what sells. That's, that's the way the signature is applied and where it's positioned is critical on a piece. That's why people that try to forge his work weren't very successful. They didn't really know how to do that. In, in the works I was telling you about at the FBI's facilities, they look very much like a beard. That's why people with selling, excuse me. Uh, but that's it. There was no life to them. And if they tried to use their imagination on some of the pieces, it failed miserably. It stood out like a sore thumb. Others wouldn't be able to pick that up, probably. But the minute I saw them, I, I knew immediately, no, this is not a beard. And I was proven right. You know, they admitted, yep. Yeah. We made those. Should have gone to jail. <laughs> they did. Yeah. Can you define the special quality that you think made Bearden Bearden? I know that's a just different than any other collage I would see. You know, it's, it, it, all I can reflect on is the first piece of his that I saw. I had never seen anything like that. It was um, uh, Miss Tilly or something in her garden. 
and it's in Myron's book. Um, I'd never seen art like that. Yeah, just the way the colors were put down, the way the imagery, it was dreamlike. You'd look at it and, and you could feel and say, oh, I'd love to be in that space. And that's, that's the quality that he has. Uh, he invites you in. And that's not an easy thing to do because most art don't have that capability. His did. So, oh, I have something to show you. Okay. Do you mind? I would love to see it. Did you ever see the cover of Art News magazine when he was on it? No, I haven't seen that issue. No. These are his coveralls oh. that he had on. Oh, wow. It says here, he called me Andy. For Andy Romare, and see the the uh, RB, he bought these from a company that sewed in his initials and they're full length uh, work covers. He was in this all the time. When he would take the train to the studio, he'd have this on. When he came with uh, Russell, he'd have his coveralls on. He never entered the studio without these on. I mean, he had about a dozen that he ordered. But I remember this was on his work stand and he had gotten a, a new one. And I said, well, man, can I have this? And he said, okay. So he signed it. It's wonderful. It's nice to have such mementos. I've got boxes full. I've got stuff that he'd given me, but it would take a lot of time to just bring them out. Um, yeah, I thought about these the other day. I said, oh, I've got to show Camara and, and Josie that coverall because nobody else is going to see that. Nobody has that. Yeah. I didn't give it to the Smithsonian. Yeah. They wanted it, but no. Yeah. Did you ever wear uh, coveralls in the studio? No. <laughs> I said to Janet, I said, maybe... Maybe today I'll put these on, but I kind of feel that, that would be somewhat disrespectful. I don't know. I just now remembered that I was going to show you these. I was going to ask earlier, like, when you think about him now, but, you know, I, I don't know. I like seeing all these objects that you have and kind of being surrounded by them, I can imagine that, you know, maybe it's often. Yeah, about every day. I, God, I've got, I'm in a lot of books, you know, encyclopedia. Couldn't believe that I was in that for painters and engravers in the United States. Uh, who's who in American art? And every time I, I see some of these volumes, I think, well, if, if not for Romare, but I earned every minute with him. I paid my dues. Believe me when I tell you that. Yeah, a lot of sleepless nights. And then I, I remember the phone call from Mr. Ekstrom, Arnie, called me at home and uh, 
He was the one that told me about Romare's passing. Okay. I remember Mr. Ekstrom asking me to show him some of my works. And it was Russ, I mean, Myron that mentioned that to Mr. Ekstrom. He said, have you ever seen Tebow's art? He said, no. And I rented a trailer, put a whole pile of my works in the back and drove to his studio on 72nd Street. And I forget, but I parked the trailer in front of his place and brought up the works. And I didn't, I, I wasn't asking him to represent me, not at all. He said, um, he goes, by the way, he says, I'm, I'm too old at this point. I want to get out of here. He says, I'm going to sell everything and let my son have the building. And, uh, but he did love the work. He spent a lot of time that day just going from one to another, asking me, how did you get this idea? And then he pointed out his favorite. He said, I love this one. This, this is my favorite. I don't know if I still have that piece. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. We were all sad at that time, you know, lost a good friend. How did your own relationship to your art change after his passing? I knew what it took to be a professional artist. I learned that from Rumir. The stick toothness, uh, you know, to stay on track. Uh, gold is to create. What else are you going to do? Do that or die. And uh, he taught me well how to be that kind of person, that kind of artist. Because it was always a question in one's mind when I was younger, you know, what do I have to do? What has to be done? How do I get from one week to another? Learned it from him. I never had a father per se. My father left, I was young. So, <clears throat> Romare's advice and, and comments were well taken. I truly appreciated that kind of uh, relationship between he and I, something I never had. I only wish it was longer, eight years, short time, speck of sand. But if I see works that he and I completed, uh, makes me smile. It's, in those eight years, something good was accomplished. So do you feel that that's the, one of the accomplishments that you're most proud of? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm happy I was able to help him the you know, last years of his life to make him feel good about getting up in the morning, coming to the studio, because he knew we weren't wasting time. And when that couple from this uh, German gallery and museum came by to his studio to visit with us, uh, I could see in his face, he, he relished the thought of exhibiting his work in Europe. He wanted that badly. Just bad timing.
We always had a mission. I'm looking at a title here, Khmer and Josie, that you might see. It's called Evening Limited to Memphis. That's the train on the trestle. When you see that piece, you'll understand how we were both at our wits end and making it real, making it work. Very complicated piece. And what's the- Something I wouldn't- I'm sorry to interrupt. What is the thing that you no, no. think clicked at the end? We hadn't given up, or at least he hadn't. I did a number of times. I'm thinking, oh, this is not gonna work. But finally, I forget where we got the photo, but there was a photo of a trestle. And when I showed him this photo, he said, that's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. And then I knew the piece was finished. We had it. Yeah, those are always good feelings to know that, to see the finish line and know that it's gonna get there. Worst thing is staring at something and you're thinking to yourself, why am I working on this for? It's never going to happen. You mentioned taking the air out of the pieces so they laid flat. Did you put anything yes. on top of them, any varnish or any kind of coating? Mm -hmm. I do. Um, unfortunately, after Romare had passed away, I, I found a product that is water-based and it is UV rendered so sunlight won't affect it as much. Uh, and my cabinet maker has had a spray booth, B-O-O-T-H, that you go in and he had a, a, an easel I could put the works on and then he would spray for me, show me how to do it. And he would spray just like painting a car or and that's how this material is applied. Most of my work that I have around the house is coated like that, so it doesn't need framing. And what I do on the edge of the piece is I'll paint a color, either white or whatever, and that's, that's the end result, the end product. I always wanted to get away from frames and framing. First, it was so expensive. Then it, half the time, it didn't work right. Did he care about frames for his pieces? He didn't want to bother with that, I might say. But uh, once I showed him these frames, didn't have to worry about it. We completed it. If the gallery wanted to put a frame on something, knock yourselves out. But uh, made life easy. And that's the, the, that was the beauty of that. Again, two minds working together. Yeah. Avoided having to bother with framing, uh, paying. And then it's got a glass front that you don't want it to break. And if it does, it could ruin the artwork. This way, there was no, no problems. The show in Boston at the Thomas Siegel Gallery, he framed the pieces that went into that show. Because I remember walking in at the opening when Romare was there with Nanette. And, uh, I said, ooh, 
I said, a lot of money was spent here. The show didn't do that well. Boston is not a place for works like Romare. Minute he came back to the city, had a show with uh, Mr. Ekstrom, sold out. You know, funny story about Mr. Ekstrom. Uh, have you ever seen photos of him? Yes. You, you have? Wow, that's amazing. And I'll tell you why. Uh, New Yorker magazine used him on a cover of their magazine as the epitome of a New York City gallery owner. Had his nose up in the air, the caricature that they drew of Arnie. It really cracked me up. He wasn't that keen about that, but, uh, you know, after he passed away, there was a New York Times obituary about him. Things in that obituary, I didn't know. Uh, Mr. Ekstrom's uh, was the inspiration for 007. He, he was the guide for the, the Fleming, the man who wrote the thing, used Arnie, because during World War II, Arnie was the head of espionage against Germany. He headed that whole section of the war. A major hero, nobody knew. He didn't want it known. And I remember a couple of times I came to his gallery, I had my camera with me. He wouldn't let me take a photo of him. And I didn't know why at the time. He said, no, he used to call me my dear boy. He goes, no, my dear boy, you're not gonna take a photo today. Maybe some other time, but not today. Uh, but when I read that obituary and realized, wow, this man was deeply involved. And, and that's how he got into the art world. A lot of finagling, yeah, manipulation of things, money, artwork itself. That was Arnie Ekstrom. Because I'd be in a studio and he'd hear the door open downstairs and he'd hear the footsteps coming up. He knew exactly who that person was. He said, oh, he said, I don't want to see her today. So he'd go in the back room and I'd, ha I'd have to say to the person coming up the stairs, oh, he's not in. He left about a half hour ago. And he'd be in the back room waiting for whomever he didn't want to speak to. Interesting man. What do you remember about Bearden's interaction with Mr. Ekstrom? You know, total respect for one another. He never called him Arnie. Always called him Mr. Ekstrom, even when he would speak to me about him. Uh, he truly appreciated the man for his efforts and what he was doing. I'm sure if he knew after his passing that hands would change in regards to representation, he, Romare would be really upset about that. He wouldn't want that. But again, money rules. Yes. They think they could get more, do it. But there was a good relationship. Whenever the phone would ring in the studio and it and I would pick it up and answer and I'd say, Romare, it's Mr. Ekstrom. He'd be, give me the phone. He was happy. He was happy to hear from him, no matter what. He was lucky, He very lucky and he deserved the luck, but to have such a good representation at that time. And I remember one day from his studio, I'll never forget this. Uh, he said, come with me to the bank. The bank was right around the corner. And as we're walking down, 
he shows me a, a check for a rather large amount. And he said, you know what this is? I, no. He goes, taxes. <laughs> I have to pay this today. He goes, but he said, I'm happy doing it. It was the first time that he had to pay so much in taxes. He wanted me to know that. Never forget it. And he had his little beret on, and he's got the check, and we're walking. He was, he was feeling good at that time. He was doing much better than towards the end. And early on in the 80, 81, 82, uh, when we would go to a restaurant together uh, around the studio area, it was interesting to see him respond to the neighborhood. He knew the butcher, so he says, I, I want to stop and just say hi to him because Nanette would give him a shopping list sometimes. She, she'd say, I want some chicken wings or whatever. And uh, so he introduces me to the butcher. He said, meet Tebow here. I want, you know, then he would take me to the diner and he knew everybody in the diner. Downstairs was Dom's, D-O-M-S, bar. It was a bar. And he would walk in there now and then, and I was with him at least four times when he did this, and he would put a $40 bill or a $60 bill on the bar, and he would say, buy them all a drink. You, you know why he did that? Keep the bums out of the studio upstairs. They protected him. Smart, smart thinking. And I would have done the same thing. And the guys were happy when he would walk in. You'd see them all straddle up to the bar. <laughs> I'll have this. I'll have that. Romeo was paying for it. What a neighborhood. And it, and it turned out that the, my mannequins that I use in my collages were right around the corner. Couldn't believe it. Did you and... Romare ever discuss his legacy? Like, did he ever say, like, I want the foundation to exist or anything like that? You know, that was problematic. I don't want to get into too much of the politics of that, but uh, he wasn't sure. I, I think eventually he and Manette got together and they put a will together. I mentioned that to him. I said, you know, do you have a will? And he said, no, I'm working on it. And uh, he never really went into great detail, if, if at all, uh, about that situation, you know, how that would be handled. After he passed away, I guess it was between June Kelly, Nanette, and the attorney, Perrin, that got together and started putting... I remember a parent called me one day, he wanted to have lunch. I don't like attorneys that much, but uh, he just wanted to do lunch to see if what I knew, if Romare had mentioned anything about wills or stuff like that. And I didn't say much. I just went to see what kind of person he was. And I was happy to get out of there. Politics, Camara. After Romare passed away, a lot of stuff. I went to uh, the funeral at St. John's the Divine in New York. That was an interesting experience. Sitting next to me was 
Mr. Ekstrom. Behind me was Myron Schwartzman. Uh, a, a lot of the powers to be were there. June was down by the altar. As Mr. Ekstrom said to me, he goes, oh, she's where she likes to be now. <laughs> they, they had their thoughts. At interesting times. So to wrap up, maybe you could tell us what you think Romare's legacy, what he would want it to be, what you think he would want it to be. You know, he, as I said, he didn't have children, but he loved kids. And I'm sure young people that look at his work today and, and see what he's doing, they see the playfulness in it, the joy that it can bring. Uh, he accomplished something that he would like to do, leaving that kind of legacy behind. Um, he was a worker. He, he was a man that didn't waste much time, uh, got things done. That's a tough question, Kamara. Uh, I just think the artwork speaks for itself. That's, that's the best conclusion I could come to. Uh, and he left a lot, which is great. He would have enjoyed meeting you, Kamara. <laughs> I can say that. Thank you for that. That's really. a compliment. Yeah, definitely would have. Is there anything else that you think we should know? I'm looking at my wife. She's going... <laughs> You know, I'm sure after we depart, I'll, I'll say, oh, why didn't I mention this or that? Or Thank you for the opportunity, by the way. Oh, you're welcome. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. It's been wonderful to hear your memories about Ramire. And... I hope I gave you enough or something. Uh... You know, I, 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 I'm, I don't know how to put it all together sometimes. You know, there's just so many things that are in the background that pop up and all of a sudden, wow. I remember, if you have any more questions or whatever, Kamara or Josie, you have my number. Okay. Great. Yeah, you're Thank always you. welcome to call. You're, you're welcome. And maybe someday if you're in the area. You know, Romare grew up in Charlotte. I'm an hour away from that. An hour and a half? About an hour and a half. In South Carolina? Charlotte. And I didn't I'm know. Sorry, in South that, Carolina? I'm in North, I'm in, North I'm, Carolina. I'm in North Carolina. Right. I'm almost on the uh, South Carolina border on the west side. But I, they have a park called the Romare Bearden Park in, in Charlotte. And I didn't know that till I got here. It was uh, one of the contractors we had that did an addition to this home. He said, oh, because he saw the book on Bearden. I had it by the table. And he goes, there's a park, Romare Bearden Park. So if ever you come by, we'll go visit okay. Romare Bearden Park. Oh, yeah. Sounds lovely. Thank you, Josie. Of course. Thank you so much. This has been Thank really you, wonderful. Yeah.